0: If you have a Bible this morning, get it out. And I'd like you to open it to the book of Matthew. We've been, um, in the past few weeks, talking about uh, what's worth seeking, what's worth finding, what's, what's worth devoting our life to. And we've talked about seeking his kingdom and different aspects of that. And I love talking about the kingdom of God. I love talking about the kingdom. Um, I, I'll be the first to say I don't fully understand it. There are, there are things every day that we're learning about the kingdom of God. I'm not going to get up here and tell you that I'm an expert on God's kingdom. I can just tell you I'm a citizen. I'm a saint. I'm, part of, I'm with you. I'm part of the kingdom of God. And we're learning through the word of God and through the spirit of God what that looks like. The kingdom of God we know is is the only thing worth pursuing. He says, seek first the kingdom and all of his righteousness and all of those other things will be added to you. So what's worth seeking? What's worth being obsessed about? What's worth spending your life pointed towards? It's the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. In fact, it says everywhere he went, he preached the kingdom. He demonstrated the kingdom. He didn't just preach it with words. He demonstrated it. You know, every time he preached the kingdom or even when he sent his disciples to preach the kingdom, he said, go preach the kingdom. Then go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Freely you've received, now freely you give. Preaching the kingdom always, always changes the atmosphere because when you preach the kingdom of God, there are a bunch of other kingdoms that have to fall, right? There's a bunch of other things that get pushed out of the way. Jesus said that every time that they came and They saw these miracles take place, and every time they went into a town and and saw God do what God does, they were to say this. He said, tell the people, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come near to you today. He tells them at another point, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, we can make that real new agey and say we each have the kingdom of God within us, but it doesn't just happen because you're a human being. It's not just some some mystic thing inside you. Each one of us has a God inside. No, no, no. The kingdom of God is found in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the pledge of the kingdom. And so we have received the kingdom of God because we've been called the children of God. Not everybody on the planet's got the kingdom of God within them. That's just the truth of the matter. And you didn't do anything to deserve it. But It says in John chapter 1, to all that believed in his name, he gave the right to be called the children of God. The reason you have the right to be called the child of God today is not because you're you're so uh, good looking or you're so skilled or you're so pure and of yourself. The reason you have the right to be called the child of God is because you believed in Jesus Christ. That's why anybody, anybody can be qualified. All you got to do is call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And when we did, when we got born again, the kingdom of God, there was a seed planted in us. His kingdom was planted on the inside of us, and it's growing every day. And I find within my own life, and I hope you can say the same about yours, but I find within my own life that the kingdom of God grows even when I don't expect it to grow. That there are things that, that, that uh, God has planted on the inside of me. There are, are maybe words that I've heard or read or, or things that He's taught us that that sometimes you just thought you knew everything and you find out you don't. And those times can be scary, but they can also be glorious. And when the kingdom of God grows, the only problem with it is this, that when the kingdom of God really grows on the inside of us, it pushes other things out. And so it messes with your life a little bit. You know, uh, you're, when your life is nice and organized and, and you've got a great schedule that works, the kingdom of God can be annoying because what it does is It grows. And uh, I've said this before, but, you know, if you've had a, I remember trees that were, you know, up just below my waist when, when we first moved into the house that my mother lives in now. When I was a kid, these trees were just, you didn't know if they'd survive the winter. They're just little spindly things. And now they're taking over the yard. They're, they're taking over everything. And, and maybe you've had those trees close to your house. And they began to push things out the kingdom of God starts out as a seed, but seeds grow and it gets bigger and it gets bigger. And I was reminded in prayer this week about a verse and it kept coming up, a verse in Zechariah 4. And we'll, we'll read it in context later this morning, but uh, I just want to quote that one verse before we really get into it. In Zechariah 4.10, it talks about, it says, who has despised the days of small beginnings? Who has despised the days of of small beginnings. We'll read what he's talking about later on, but first I want to read some things to you that Jesus taught us about the kingdom. But I want you to think about that thought for a minute. Who has despised the days of small beginnings? He goes on and describes how God used those very small beginnings to do some amazing things. The Hebrew word for despise there is buzz. Buzz. That's an easy one to remember, hey? You ever get those Hebrew words that are, or Greek words are even worse? Because a lot of times in the New Testament, I mean, you, don't, you might not realize it reading it, but in the New Testament, there are words that were created by the people that wrote the letter. They combined like two or three words together and said, this is the word we're going to use. And so sometimes when you try to say them and you try to pronounce them, you just feel like an idiot. But we can all pronounce this, buzz. That's just simple. And I want you to remember this week, we are not going to buzz the things of God, all right? Don't buzz the things of God. Don't buzz what he's doing. Don't buzz the small things. Don't scorn, don't contend, don't hold in contempt. Don't despise the small things that God's doing because small things become big things. We we are in a culture where everything seems like it springs up overnight. I've got some friends that planted churches and I remember, you know, back when, for me, uh, the idea of planning a church was, you know, you go, you win some people to the Lord, you start meeting in a house, you do some Bible study, it grows, it grows, and it grows like that. But I mean, I've got friends that started a church and the first Sunday. They had, they had three screens. They had a, a, a world-class website. They had a band that could have played on any stage around the world. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. And God used that, God did some great things through that, but we shouldn't look at those kind of things and say, well, that's the only way things can happen now. It's just got to be big, it's just got to be fantastic. So often we're looking for the big things. I know when God speaks to you about what you're going to do with your life, let's just talk about that. When God speaks to you about what you're going to do with your life, what you're going to do with the rest of your your time here on earth, most of the time, The parts we really get excited about are, are the big picture, exciting, I can put that in a Christmas letter and people will be proud of me kind of things. The things that play well on television, the things that you can discuss at a dinner party and people will think you're pretty impressive. But rarely do the things of God ever start out like that. See, we say, well, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to hold... Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had, a, if we had a, an evangelistic meeting in this place and there were, there were thousands of people? Yeah, 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 yeah. But like I've said before, if your dream is to preach in front of 10,000 people, why aren't you preaching in front of the five you've got right now? If our dream is, you know, I, I, I talk to people who say, someday my business is going to take off and I believe I'm going to give millions to missions, they don't, but they don't, you don't give any now. So now I don't know what you give, but... You know what you give and I know what I give and I know that we all have these grandiose dreams but we're sometimes afraid to start out with the small things because we're, we're really judging them by the flesh instead of by the spirit. Jesus talked about seeds more than most things. It was a favorite thing of him to talk about. In fact, we're going to read in, in the book of Matthew here. If I don't want you to turn in your Bible. In Matthew chapter 13... Matthew 13 is wonderful because it's a a series of parables describing the kingdom of God. So in this chapter, he's going to use this phrase a lot, the kingdom is like. You know, so often we want to define the kingdom. We want to define the things of God. We want a good, nice dictionary definition. But none of these parables is meant to fully define the kingdom of God. Instead, when he says the kingdom of God is like, he's not going to tell you a perfect dictionary definition of the kingdom. He's going to show you how the kingdom works. So often we try to define the things of God, we try to get a logical explanation, we try to get a good dictionary description, when really what God's trying to teach you is not the perfect definition for what he's doing, but rather, why he's doing it, when he wants to do it, how he's doing it. There are people that, can, that, can, that have so much knowledge on the things of God from, a, from an academic perspective, but they don't know how the kingdom of God works. There are people that can tell you about the gifts of the Spirit, but they've never flowed in the gifts of the Spirit. Jesus here is not trying to define the kingdom. He's trying to show you the nature and the characteristics of the kingdom. Because when you understand that, you can see the kingdom working in you. So here's what he says in Matthew 13. Of course, we're going to skip the the most famous parable because I'm going to trust that you know that. He first starts out with telling them about the sower that sows the seed. And in this parable, the seed is the word of God. And it goes into somebody's heart. He talks about a hard heart that the seed doesn't penetrate and it, it gets eaten by birds. Satan immediately comes and steals the word. He talks about a shallow heart, a heart that is happy to hear the word, but doesn't go any further with it. And when hard times come, that person dries up and goes away. He talks about a busy person, somebody who is so occupied with other things that the word that's been planted in them eventually gets choked out and, and, and by weeds. It gets too crowded and, and it doesn't bear any fruit. Then he talks about a good heart where the seed is sown and it bears just multiple fruit. It just, it, it, it overwhelmingly prospers. And then he goes on and he tells some more parables. And these are the ones we're going to read. In verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and he sowed the tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Now, first of all, I'm just going to tell you the slaves. Sometimes when we think slavery, we think of like, you know, 19th century United States. We're not talking about slaves like that. We're talking about people that work for this guy. So here's, here, the people that work for this guy, they come to him and they say, uh, Didn't you sow good seed in your field? But we're noticing there's, there's some... Weeds there, there's some, there's some stuff that shouldn't be there. He said, how then does it have tares? In verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Later, when he describes and explains this parable, he says that the seed is us. He says the seed are the sons of the kingdom, and the field is the world. Then he says he talks about the tares, and these are the fakes; these are the ones that are, are are there, but they're not real. You know, these are the guys that are that are um, really, in the end, playing the game, but they're not they don't they don't really believe. And in these folks, he says, don't you worry about uprooting all of them. At the end of the day, I'll do that. See, so often we want to we fix everything. We want to get all the fakes out. We want to get all the, 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 the ones who aren't fully in it. We want to we root out all the weeds. And he says the problem with that is in rooting out the weeds, you end up rooting out some of the good ones too. Let me just tell you, this happens a lot in ministry. You see people that um, really as far as you can tell, aren't in it for the right reasons. Uh, I think if, if any of us could, um, you know, pick a church and, and, and be like the, the old dodgeball days where we could stand on the field and say, I want that person, I want that person. There's a lot of people we'd skip over because they just don't seem like they're in it. You know, they just seem like they're just playing the game or just going through the motions. But the problem with that attitude is you're judging by the flesh. And you're judging them for where they are right now. But if you let God take care of that, because see the problem, he says, the problem with that is you'll end up uprooting some good ones. I could just tell you right now. And, and and T and I were talking, this is in, in November, it'll be 10 years pastoring. And so I haven't been in it for a long time, but I've been in it long enough to have saw a couple things. And there are people And and nobody here, we're not going to talk about this church. Let's talk about Loon Lakers, okay? There there are people I would have said, oh, please, God, don't let them come again. Please just give them a job somewhere else. That have become the best. That have become some of of the, the most useful people in the kingdom of God. And my problem is, is I'm judging where they are right now. There are teenagers whose parents dragged them to church. They don't want to be there. They sat through two, three youth camps and did nothing. And, and it, it's, it's, it's not like they're, they're neutral. It's like they're actually pulling everybody else down with them. And you say, oh, why do you drag this kid to church? And those kids are the ones that now are going all over the world preaching the gospel. Yeah, God. So why do we, we, we so often want to root these people up? When God says, don't you root them up. Let me do that. I'll do that when the time comes. The problem is you're judging it by the flesh. Now, let's go on. And he says this. He, he, he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and he sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in his branches. It's interesting That the giant, the great, the awesome, the magnificent kingdom of God is first the smallest thing in the garden. You know, we often think like the disciples thought. When Jesus was about to go into heaven, they said, okay, Lord, when's your kingdom going to come? When is your kingdom coming on earth? And what they were asking was not the kingdom we were talking about right now. What they were asking is, Okay, you did the crucified thing. You did the rise from the dead thing. Now, when are we going to rise up, put you on a throne, and kick everybody else out? When are we going to really take over? See, they were still looking for a kingdom they could see. And Jesus tells them this. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs that are... determined by the Father, but this I will tell you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. And so what he's telling them is you're looking for a kingdom you can feel and touch. I'm telling you about a greater kingdom and it's going to come about when you receive the Holy Spirit. So here he's describing that the kingdom is the small thing. It starts out as the smallest thing. How many times have we despised the small thing? How many times have we turned our nose up at an opportunity God gave us because it wasn't our dream? Yes. It's almost never your dream because you're dreaming of an apple tree, but you don't want to touch an apple seed. Come on, come on come on We're dreaming of this giant orchard, but somebody gives us a handful of seeds and we go, this isn't my dream. I dreamed of an orchard. We'll take these seeds. No, this looks nothing like the dream God gave me. Of course it doesn't. It starts out as those seeds. And you say, well, I can't imagine how these seeds... Look, look at this seed. It looks nothing like an apple. It's black. It looks nothing like a tree. It's, 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 it's not even the same shape. How can this turn into that? And yet that's the way God does it. Sometimes that's our other problem. We're okay if things start out small, but we want them to look like a miniature version of what we, do, what we dreamed. Seeds don't look like the thing they produce, do they? (laughs) An apple seed doesn't look like an apple or it doesn't look like a tree. It looks like a seed. Why are we so obstinate sometimes that we, and and really, I got to admit this, and I'll be the one to admit it, and you guys can be holy and perfect in your seats, and that's cool, but I'll admit it for myself that so often what I'm looking for is an answer to those people that are saying, so, what are you doing now? Those questions are nice questions in conversation. Because when you get stuck at a, a table at a wedding reception, you don't know what to talk about. So, what do you do? Well, this is what I do. Or, what about the people who haven't seen you for a while? So, what's new in your life? Oh, I hate that question what's new? because I feel like I'm on, I'm on trial here. I got to give them something good because suddenly the great things that God is doing, they already know about that. They're asking what's new. I need new stuff. So I want something that's going to impress them. I want them to drop their fork in that rubber chicken that they're eating and I want them to say, whoa, God's doing that with you? Yes, he is. I'll tell you what else he's doing. Let me tell you some stories from the field. I want them to get their notebook out and say, when are you going to write a book? Oh, soon. If I wasn't so busy doing the things of God, I'd probably have written five by now. But the truth is, isn't it true that most of the time when you start doing what God's told you to do, it's not impressive? Sometimes you tell people what you're doing and they go, oh, oh, okay. they just talk to the person on their left. That happens a lot. We got to see things the way God sees them. See, we've talked about this before, and I think it was Brother Tracy Harris that first said it, and I thought it was a great statement. But I'm sure somebody said it before him because it's, it's an old concept. That you can, you can hold an orange and count every seed in that orange. But you can hold an orange seed And you have no idea how many oranges that seed's going to produce. We judge things so quickly. We don't know what God can do with one seed. And here he says, the kingdom is like the smallest seed, but it'll take over. It'll take over the garden. And the birds and all these things will come to it because it started out small, but the kingdom was designed to grow. He says this, He speaks another parable to them. Verse 33, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. Parable of the leaven was much like the parable of the mustard seed in that, you know, the leaven seems so small, the little bit of yeast seems so small, but eventually it works its way throughout everything else. The only problem with this is it takes a whole lot of faith and a whole lot of trust because seeds develop when you can't see them developing. Probably the most dramatic changes that happen in a seed happen under the ground when you have no idea what's going on. You can't see them. You can't brag about them. And we're all waiting for that first sprout. I've seen people who were so eager to have that big impressive tree that they worked real hard at growing this part out, but they didn't put those roots down. And the roots aren't fascinating. They're not exciting because nobody sees roots. But if you don't put down big roots, you can't be a big tree. If you're a big tree without big roots, you'll die. I remember when I was just coming out of high school well, that's one of the toughest, part, toughest times to, be, uh, to answer questions is when you're just coming out of high school because everybody wants to know your plan. What's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? What's your, you know, they want you to have your life mapped out. And here you are trusting God. Once again, you're looking for something to give them. At least just give them something because I'm tired of being bugged by this because people gave me money on my graduation. They want you to do something worthwhile with that money. They don't want you to like, you know, go buy a meal at Wendy's. They don't want, they don't want, they want you to do something with that money. I want to, I want to feel like I'm investing in your life and, and that's a great and noble thing. But the problem was I was always looking for something to tell them. What do I tell you? The truth was I was seeking the Lord and I, and, and the answers I was getting were not the answers I wanted. I didn't want to go into the mission field. I didn't want to start ministering with dad. I, 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 wanted, to go, I wanted to go to university for like 14 years. I, I didn't want to do that because, you know, I just felt like then I, I could do all that later, but at least I'd have some certificates on my wall. But those certificates mean very little to God. God. Now, I believe in education. I believe that God's called many people to go to education. God's sent people to seminary, Bible school, university. I believe in that. But if you're doing it just so people will be impressed with your resume, it's the wrong reason. And you'll get real tired real quick. I was looking for it. I wanted it. I had to learn what Paul said in Galatians. If we were trying to please people, we could not be bondservants of Christ. If we were trying to please people, we couldn't be bondservants of Christ. How do we despise the days of small beginnings? The word despise in the Bible, I told you about the Hebrew word buzz, which is, or booze or whatever how it is pronounced, which is, you know, really scorn and contempt. But there's another word in the New Testament that's often used for despise, and it's, it's to take of no account. And, and it's very closely related to that Hebrew word as well. It's to take of no account. It's to say it's not worth anything. When I was a kid, I grew up reading about David's mighty men. Any young men today got real impressed with David's mighty men? Any young women got real impressed with David's mighty men? Right on, okay. I'm not going to eliminate any genders here. So David's mighty men impressed me because these were the elite. This was like, this was like special forces times 10. You had a guy who chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Nobody chases lions and you don't do it on a snowy day. You don't chase him into a pit. That's, that's a bad place to get stuck with a lion, but... but that's what Ben and I did. Or you got, you got those guys, you got the, you know, got the guy that, that uh, is, is fighting off giants with the, the weapon he took from one of the giants. So you got a guy that's defending a little bean field from a whole army of people, a lentil field. And, and, and these are guys I'm really impressed with. And I'm saying, wow, these are the, the, the best of the best fighters. This, these guys would make a great movie, but Hollywood would mess it up. But you watch how they started. David didn't go throughout Israel recruiting the best soldiers. Do you know what it says? It says that David, Saul was chasing David around. David had nowhere to stay. David was running from the law. And it says the depressed, the rejected, the despised, those that were up to their neck in debt, the people that society had no use for, the worthless men, gathered together David and he became a captain over them. David's mighty men started out as the the useless, rejected, the people society had no use for. Those that were in debt, those that were, it says, worthless men. One of those mighty men, when you read about their exploits, was worth so many ordinary G.I. Joes. But when they started out, they weren't worth a thing. So often, we're looking for the the people that God can use. How many times have we heard somebody say, oh, I wish they'd get saved. Think about how much they could do for the kingdom. Maybe you said that about your favorite favorite singer when you were growing up. Oh, I wish they'd get born again. (laughs) Or maybe you said that locally. Oh, that business person. Can you imagine if God got a hold of their heart what they could do for the Lord? When's the last time you looked at that total loser? That just idiot that can't do anything right. And said, imagine what God can do with somebody like that. Because in 1 Corinthians, he says it very clearly. God chose the, those that weren't that wise. He chose those that weren't that noble. He chose those that weren't, weren't that strong. He chose the things that weren't and the worthless and the rejected and the despised to prove who he was. Jesus certainly did the same thing. He, he chose some smart people. He had tax collectors on his payroll. They were smart, but they weren't that trustworthy. And he picks fishermen. And if you were a fisherman in, in, in Jesus' society, it's a, it's a fine enough living, but it basically meant you couldn't do anything else. You were not the kid that got to go to rabbinical school. You were not the kid that went to go. You were the kid that they said, well, you can, you can throw a net in water, can't you? Yes, I can do that. That's what you're going to do, Petey. All right, you can be a fisherman. These are the guys that God, Jesus picks. When he talks about the kingdom, it's huge. It's something that eventually takes over everything, but it always starts out so small that nobody gives it any mind. How many times have we just rejected what God was doing because it wasn't our dream? Because it wasn't what we saw ourselves doing? Because it wasn't something that was impressive to other people? you don't know what the seed that God puts in your life will eventually become. And it is a sin to despise it. And it is a blessing to receive it with joy. And we've done the same thing with people. And we've tried to root them out because they're not worth it. God, just root these people out. Oh, I'm so tired of them. But in rooting them out, what you might be doing is rooting out God's prized, precious wheat because you judge them after your own flesh. Or even you judge them early. You might be judging them spiritually, but you're judging them way too early. It's not your job to root them out. It's God's. Now, here's what we were first referencing, and we'll go back to in Zechariah chapter 4. I want to read you the the story. I've spent time in the past teaching on Zechariah 3 and 4, in greater detail than we will today, and I don't think, I think about half of you might have been there when that happened. Probably, maybe a quarter of you remember what we talked about, but uh, we won't go into great depth today because we want to we just get to where uh, God's got us going. But in Zechariah chapter 4, I love uh, this section, I love Zechariah 3. These are all visions that Zechariah the prophet is having. Zechariah was one of the, the prophets that came back with uh, the Jews from Babylon. This is all happening uh, after, uh, you know, after these Jews have began to come, begun to come back. They'll come back in different waves. They left in waves and they'll come back in waves. This is the group that came back in the first wave. Now we know later Ezra and Nehemiah would do this great work. We know about those guys. But two guys that you might not know as much about are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua uh, was the high priest at the time, and Zerubbabel was actually the legitimate successor to the king of Judah. His, his granddad or great-granddad, Yeconiah, was uh, the second last king um, of Judah before, before they got exiled. And so he was really the legitimate king but he, he had the task of this. He had the task of rebuilding the temple of God. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. It had been totally torn down. And, 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 and what the Babylonians didn't do, time did. It eventually just was a, a heap of ruins. And so before Zerubbabel could build the temple, he had to clear the rubble. And it was a mountain of rubble. It was a, it was a big job. And quite frankly, this is a ragtag group. They're not your elite people. They're not your best. They're people that are coming back to their homeland, and it's not as pretty as they've heard about. It's not as as lovely as they've been told. It's a mess. It's got to be cleaned up. Zerubbabel looks at this ruin, and it's overwhelming. You ever step into a, a dirty house or a a dirty room when you're a kid and, and you just don't know where to start. So it just takes all the, you. I mean, you have this energy, I'm going to get it done, I'm going to get it done, but then you step in and it's so messy, you just lose everything right there because you don't know where to start, you just get deflated. Zerubbabel steps back into Jerusalem and he sees the temple of Solomon is, is rubble, it's ruined and he just doesn't have the the people or the strength or the willpower to get it done. Not not only to build the thing, but first of all, just to clear the mess. Who's going to do it? Who's going to get it done? And what God deals with in Zechariah chapter 3 is the spiritual aspect. Because the people of Judah are coming back from Babylon stained by their lack of following God's ways, stained by their sin. They've been stained by the culture and so they come back and they're, they're not pretty, they're not, they're not lovely, they're messed up. And God gives Zechariah a vision of Joshua, the high priest, and Joshua is going to represent the people of Israel as the high priest always represented the people of Israel. Interestingly enough, Joshua's name, Yeshua, is the very name that Jesus bore. But Joshua stands in front of the Lord. He's filthy, and he's got these ripped and dirty clothes. And Satan stands beside him. Remember, Joshua is representing the people of Israel and all their filth, and all their mess. And Satan begins to accuse him and says, Look, he's dirty. How can he stand in your presence? Look at all this filth. God sends his angels to say, The Lord rebuke you. Isn't this a brand I plucked from the fire? And he takes his dirty robes off, and he puts on clean clothes, and he puts a, a clean turban on his head, and he puts a ring on his finger. And he tells him, Look, if you'll walk before me, if you'll keep my commandments, you'll keep my word, I'll let you, you'll walk before these See these angels right here? You'll, 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 they'll be working for you. You're going to do my will here. In Zechariah chapter 4, he begins to deal with another person. He begins to deal with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel who's been depressed by the work that needs to get done, the small group of ragtag folks he's got. Who are we to do anything? In Zechariah chapter 4, The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who was awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with this bowl on the top of it and it's seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees beside it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me saying, what are these my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, do you not know what these are? He says, no, my Lord. Now, in, the, in, in God's system that he set up with the Hebrew people, a lampstand often represented his presence. In, in the tabernacle, they'd have a lampstand, and, and that, that lampstand represented the perpetual presence of the Lord. And the oil was the anointing, the Spirit of God. Seven in these visions was always, it was was always important because 7 represented perfection it was it was enough it was perfect so there were seven spouts and seven bowls with these lamps so th- there was there was a perfection there was there was enough there wasn't anything lacking God is showing Zerubbabel that the anointing that's necessary my presence and my spirit is more than enough for you it is perfect there's not going to be anything lacking There's not going to be anything you're having to do without. But Zerubbabel doesn't comprehend it. He says, what are these? He says, do you not know? Do you not know? Actually, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm saying Zerubbabel, but it's actually um, not Zerubbabel that's that's saying, I don't know. It's Zechariah himself. He's saying, I don't know what this is. And the angel responds. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Remember, God has just shown him a picture. Of a lampstand that never runs dry, that has these seven spouts, that has these seven bowls, that has a perpetual amount of anointing flowing through it, that there is always more than enough. And he says, Zerubbabel, you think, how can I ever get this done? But I'm going to tell you something. It's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. It's not going to be by your strength. It's going to be by my spirit. And my spirit will be more than enough for you. He says this. He goes on. And he says... What are you, O oh, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone. Now, the top stone, that's the capstone, that's the final piece, that's the last piece of the puzzle. He says, When you finish the temple, you are all gonna shout, Grace, grace to it. Because what's gonna, what it's gonna take to get this done is not you having a good force of hard workers. What it's going to take for you to get this done is not a bunch of skill. What it's going to take for you to get this done is not all your power and all your strength. What it's going to take is the presence, the anointing, the grace of God. It is my strength. It is my spirit that's going to get it done. And you're going to shout grace to it. This great mountain has become plain. And you'll put the capstone. You'll put the final piece on the puzzle saying grace. And he says this. The word of the Lord came to me saying The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and forth throughout the earth. He goes on and he goes deeper into the vision, but I just want to stop there for a minute. Can you imagine the depression that this guy's facing? It's easy to sign on to a task. It's easy, to, it's easy when someone says, well, you rebuild the temple, and you're picturing the day when the temple's open and it's beautiful. But right now, he's standing in front of a bunch of rubble with a bunch of losers. He doesn't have the strength to get it done. And God says, look, my anointing. My presence, my spirit is perpetual, it is perfect, it is more than enough for you. You're not going to get it done by your might. You're not going to get it done by your power. You're going to get it done by my spirit. Who has despised the day of small things, Zerubbabel? Look at all these people. He says, these seven, and he's talking about the seven eyes of the Lord. He says, the eyes of the Lord will be glad when they see the plumb line. Now, the plumb line, you guys know if you're in construction, Probably don't use a, an actual plumb line anymore, but you might, I don't know. But the plumb line shows you that things are level, that things are right. And it was one of the, you do it at the beginning, you do it all through the process, but you certainly need to do it at the end, make sure the thing is built right. And that has spiritual significance as well, because God talks about His plumb line, that His perfection, His, His righteousness, that that's what we measure everything by he says, at the end of the day, he said, they'll see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. And then he says in verse 11, he said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand on its left? And I answered the second time, I said to them, what are the two olive branches, which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. He goes on, and this this vision gets weird, and it gets wacky, and it gets amazing. But we're not going to get too deep down the rabbit hole today because we'll never come back, or it would be a while before we did. I want you to see today that the Lord might say to you, why have you despised the day of small things? So many times, seeds die because we haven't honored them for what they are. So many times seeds die because we've neglected them, because we were looking for the the tree when we needed to start with the seed. So many times young trees die because we root them up because they seem useless to us, when we should have let God take care of that. So many times we're looking for the big when God says you'll get the big when you start with the small. If there's anything I've learned in ministry, it's this that really, what God does, and what God can do, I've never been able to predict, but I've always found that it it never starts out like it's going to end up. Now, that's not to say you don't start with excellence, and you, you start with integrity, and you start with faith. It'll start with faith, it'll end with faith. But I found that, we all want to we all want to see this big thing. We all want to see it for what it looks like in the end. But barely anybody recognizes it at the beginning. Isn't it infuriating to you? We hear these reports of these organizations that treat a, a little baby in the womb like it's nothing. Is it infuriating to you when they call it just a bunch of tissue? When they sell it off for parts? Doesn't that make you angry and sad and broken? Absolutely. Why? Because we know that that's not just a bunch of tissue. That is a, that is a person created in the image of God and will grow. But we don't just value him, them for what they will turn into. We value for them for what they are right now. They have the spirit. They have a spirit in them. And so it's sad when we see that. But I'll tell you right now, we treat a lot of things that way. We shouldn't be surprised if the world treats that. They don't see it. They they they, they say, "Well, it, it's not it's, it doesn't have value till it looks like this. We're not going to give it a uh, personhood until it looks like this, until it can do this." How many times have we done that with the things of God? I don't I'm not going to give it any value until it begins to breathe on its own. I'm not going to give it any value until it can it can move on its own. I'm not going to give it any value till it looks like something that I can identify with. And we treat the things of God like a pile of tissue. But that, that little fetus could become the next prime minister of Canada. That little fetus could become the next great evangelist. That little fetus, you don't know what that little fetus is. And you know what? We sometimes still, even that attitude is wrong. You know why? Because we're giving it value based on what it'll be someday instead of saying it has value right now. It has value right now. Because it's created in the image of God. Don't treat the small things with contempt. Jesus, of course, taught us that if you can be trusted with the little things, you'll be made ruler over much. If you can be faithful with the little things, you'll make you ruler of much. We're all looking to be rulers. Don't despise the little things. <laughs> I could look back at my own life and see the little chores and little tasks that I did that I thought were worth nothing. And God used them to turn something, to do things inside of me that I never could have predicted. And to, to make me into a person that I, I thought I could just become on my own. Stop throwing away the little things and the little people. And I'm not saying... I'm not saying that in a, in a way that sometimes... Nobody likes to be called a little person, you know? So, you know, it's not, it's not a good idea for you to go up to people and say, you know, I heard that message on Sunday and I was thinking about you. Yeah. When he's talking about the losers and the rejects, you really were on my heart. And I, I, I apologize for treating you so callously. That won't go over well, will it? But let's honor. You know what? Honor the, the opportunities God gives you. Honor them and and just just work it out right now that most of the things that God tells you to do will either sound crazy to people or at best sound, sound like nothing. You know what I mean? I'm sure Abraham would have loved for people to stop asking him, you're packing, where are you going? I'm sure Noah would have loved for people to stop saying, why are you building a boat? I'm sure these guys would have loved for people to stop asking the questions. See, right now, you might think it's tough when people ask you, what are you doing with your life, and you don't have a good answer. Here's the other thing. What if you had an answer, and, and, and they think it's absolutely nuts and insane, and they have an intervention? <laughs> because you're a nutbag. I'm not talking about your Christian family. I'm talking about your, your unsaved, Bless their little hearts. They love you, but they, they might not know what God's doing. We have to get over the need to be impressive. The impressive will come. but it's not why we do it. We have to get over the need of wanting everything to instantly be done, instantly be built. You guys know here in town, the stuff that goes up quick, we'll see how long it lasts, right? Mm-hmm. Stuff goes up quick, but you build cheap, you build fast, that has its own price, doesn't it? The stuff that God does lasts for a long time. I want you to just honor the opportunities. Can we do that? Can we honor what God's put in front of us right now? So if God has given you an open door, and it seems like the the smallest, lousiest open door you've ever seen, but it's from God, go through it. If God's given you a seed and you say, what in the world, this is not what I want. Lord, I've been asking you for this. I've been asking you and asking you and praying for a tree, and you give me this plant the seed, water the seed, or maybe you're the one that's supposed to plant and someone else is supposed to water, but God will give the growth. Can we do that? Stand up with me today.